Okay, this morning we're going to do part two of the message we started last week. Last week was just a whole bunch of introduction where we uh, kind of got ready to, um, you know, talk about what we were going to talk about today. So uh, if you have your Bible, you we're, we're just, and we're not really going to be looking at any text in detail. This is kind of just a big warning this morning. Every day we eat a variety of foods, and you can imagine that if you went out to your favorite restaurant and, uh, you know, ordered whatever your favorite dish was and your favorite drink and sat down, but the cook decided to put a little strychnine or cyanide on your food, that compared to the whole, the amount of poison on your food would be relatively little, but it would be enough to kill you. And in a similar way, um, there are a lot of trends and views and uh, theological positions and movements and cults and things like that out there, which have quite a bit of truth in them, uh, but they have just enough theological poison to not only kill you, but damn you to hell. And so that is why last week we started looking about the different kinds of error. We talked about four different kinds of error. If you remember, there's, you know, misinterpreting a passage, teaching truth, true doctrine, but from the wrong text. There is uh, maybe having a, a view of the a wrong view of the end times, which you need to teach actually a false doctrine, but really it has no major bearing on your life. Or uh, there is uh, the kind of error that causes you or other people to sin, but doesn't damn you to hell. And then there is the worst kind, which is a damning heresy, something that if you were to believe, it would prevent you from getting to heaven. So we talked about those different kinds of errors. Then we talked about uh, the church in America as a whole, just kind of the broad sweeping um, uh, picture of where Christianity has gone astray in different areas. Um, we talked about uh, professing Christians. Many people in America profess to know Christ. They don't know Christ. They they don't read their Bible. They don't even go to church. They just live like they want. They're just Christians because this is a Christian country. And so we call ourselves Christians because uh, we live in America. So there's kind of a social type of Christian out there. Of course, those people are living in error. There are the mainline denominations that have gone liberal. Those are uh, churches that have pretty much rejected the Bible and uh, the basic uh, beliefs that we hold to be essential. And yet they're still a church. They've become kind of social uh, active activism groups. Um, so there are the mainline liberal denominations. Then there is the cold, dead Orthodox churches. These churches are holding on to sound doctrine, but they aren't doing anything with it. They aren't evangelizing. They aren't multiplying leaders. They aren't discipling. They aren't training. They're just kind of hiding in their little fortress and slowly dwindling and dying away and pining away um, out there. It's just, uh, um, just a mess. Then you get into uh, another large group of the charismatic Pentecostal third wave churches, which uh, have some good things going for them as far as their zeal and passion for the Lord. But in many cases, it's not according to knowledge. Uh, they believe in continuing revelation. Uh, they delude themselves into thinking that God is still uh, performing miracles through people who have the gifts, the sign gifts. And, uh, and so we talked a little bit about that. 
Finally, we have a very uh, inclusive and extremely broad-sweeping movement called the seeker-sensitive uh, movement or the church growth movement or the, the purpose-driven church movement. And this is just giant and has infiltrated liberal Christianity, uh, conservative Christianity, uh, the Pentecostal third wave, charismatic movements, and uh, that is a huge movement that's just trying to entertain the world, to give unbelievers what they want in order to try and draw them in the church to get them churched um, as if being in the church was a matter of coming into the building when in fact it's not um, that only happens through repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we kind of surveyed all of that last week, um, seeing that it's important. We looked at scriptures about the importance of of being aware of many scriptures talking about how we need to be aware of uh, false doctrine, be warned of it, that we need to expose it, that we need to refute it, we need to reject false teachers. And uh, so last week was a big uh, introduction to what I want to say this morning, which is I want to warn you about a variety of theological poisons out there that you most certainly will encounter. And after the first service, uh, many people came up to me and said, oh yeah, you know, I've got a son or I've got a daughter. I know this person. Um, And so as we go through here, I think you will um, be made more aware of things that are going on. I think a lot of times people go to Bible churches are are pretty ignorant about (laughs) reality out there. Uh, No, things aren't that bad, are they? I mean, you come to church, you bring your Bible, we open up the Bible, we study it week by week, go through passages, you know, verse by verse, book by book. And you're thinking, well, isn't that kind of how it is out there? No, no. Most people never bring a church, a book, a Bible to church. Um, that's, uh, there's never a time when people say, look at the text and see what it says. And this is what it means. And this, that applies to your life. Most people never experience that in quote Christianity in America. So churches like this are, are very rare. And so let's talk about the first, um, thing to be aware of. And that is beware of the emergent church. The term emergent church is used to describe a new movement from within Christianity, which is kind of a uh, reaction against kind of the standard old stale orthodox churches, churches like this, the charismatic churches, the seeker sensitive churches. It's a reaction. Uh, emerging from um, kind of standard Bible-believing Christianity or even old, stale Christianity of any form that you want to say. And it is uh, that and postmodernism. Now, if you're out there thinking, postmodernism, what is that? Well, that's how most people feel when they hear a term like that. I have no idea what postmodernism is. Um, well, I have to tell you, because we're going we're gonna to see this all the way through um, this morning. And so what we need to do is do a little history of the world. Uh, a history of the world, uh, starting with the Dark Ages. And I want to just very quickly survey some of the movements of thought that have brought us to the place we are today so you can understand what I mean when I say the emergent church is a baby or byproduct or spawn of postmodernism. Well, if you go back to the Dark Ages, the Dark Ages are from around 500 A.D. to about 1200 A.D. The Dark Ages are called the Dark Ages because in that time, ignorance reigned. The Roman Catholic Church was in power. 
They had the scriptures and they told people, listen, you can't read the scriptures. You can't know the scriptures. You can't understand the scriptures. This is for the church alone to interpret. And so we are going to tell you what to believe, tell you what to do, tell you um, what God wants of you. And so you just trust us and we will tell you. Well, as soon as that happened, there were just huge abuses happened. If you've ever read church history, you know what they are. Just the great abuses, uh, people being used, people being um, manipulated, uh, put under fear, all sorts of stuff, taught a false gospel, taught to trust in uh, sacraments to save them. And it was just a time of great ignorance, a time when ignorance raised. That's why it's called the Dark Ages. But... At the end of the Dark Ages, there were some men like John Wycliffe and Tyndale and certain men who were Roman Catholic monks and priests who wanted to get the scriptures into the hands of the common man. And so they started doing things like translating uh, the Latin Vulgate, the Latin version of the scriptures of the time, or the Hebrew and Greek into the common language. And when the church found this out, they started killing these men. Because they were so fearful of the truth getting in the hands of the populace because it would expose their doctrines as being wrong. Well, coming out of the Dark Ages, we have the Reformation. The Reformation is a time when God, through his Holy Spirit, moved in the hearts of men, uh, most of them Roman Catholics, to bring the truth of God to the common people in a language that they could understand. It was also a time of the printing press, which was invented in about 14, in the middle of four, about 1450 AD. And the printing press allowed for people to have books, which was something they were never able to have before. People could actually have their own copy of the Bible. And so with the invention of the printing press and with God moving in the hearts of people, it became more and more uh, obvious that God was trying to reform the church because the gospel, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone was being kept from the masses. And so those who protested against uh, the Roman Catholic Church, what happened is, is as men started to bring the scriptures out for the common people, the church started killing those men. And so those who rebelled against the Catholic Church, protested against the Catholic Church, were called Protestants. And so if you ever wonder where the term Protestantism comes from, that is, we are a Protestant church, that is, our church follows in the line of those who have rebelled against the Catholic Church and refuse to believe their false gospel and their mysticism and salvation by the sacraments. Well, the Protestants then um, started to study the Bible and men like Martin Luther um, got the Bible into the common language of the people. The people started reading it and really became angry. They became angry because of the ignorance they were kept in for so long. As soon as books started to become available, more people wanted to read. They wanted to read and they wanted to study and they wanted to read every book that was written. And so that moved just uh, the times into what is called the Renaissance. The Renaissance was a period of great learning where people were reacting against the Dark Ages and were just 
study was the socially acceptable thing to do. To know four or five or six different languages. To know science and botany and, and music and arts. And people just studied and studied because they were, they were angry and reacting against this time of great ignorance. And that is why if you have ever studied arts or music, the great composers, the great art, artists, the great mathematicians, they almost all come from the period of what? The Renaissance. Because that was the time when learning and studying was in vogue. It was also the time of the Westminster Assembly where um, uh, Presbyterianism um, became uh, hammered out and the Westminster Confession was hammered out. It was the time of the Puritans um, who were great uh, preachers and theologians and intellects who systematized uh, many of the doctrines of the Christian faith. Well, after the Renaissance came the Enlightenment. This time period was uh, characterized as people, you know, considering ethics and knowledge and scientific theory. But still the Bible was considered the queen of the sciences. And the Bible was directing all of these different uh, fields of study. But with enlightenment and following from enlightenment came what is called rationalism, where men got so smart they decided that maybe they were smart enough to come up with the truth without the Bible. And that is when things started getting bad. Um, this was in the 1800s, late 1800s, rationalism really took hold. Uh, the German theologians uh, began to develop all sorts of weird theories that undermined the validity and authority and historicity of the Bible, began to attack the scriptures viciously because they thought that they could, in their own mind, come up with an explanation for miracles and tried to, you know, get rid of and explain away um, all the supernatural parts of the Bible. This gave rise to what is called theological liberalism. So if you ever hear me say something like, well, that's liberal thought or whatever, that's what I'm talking about. Theological liberalism rose out of this, that is, that the miracles of the Bible aren't true, the inspiration, inerrancy uh, of the Bible isn't true, the virgin birth of Christ isn't true, the deity of Christ isn't true, you know, you would just invent your own God, make him what you want, um, you know, thinking and studying and academia about the Bible is okay, but only as a piece of literature not because it's some sort of supernatural book rationalism and liberalism devastated europe they swept through europe and that is why if you go there even today there are many gorgeous large dead churches some of them with nobody in them on sunday they were the the german rationalists were so effective at destroying people's trust in the bible that people just walked away from christianity and the church died in europe and it has never recovered well, rationalism and liberalism then gave away to what is called modernism. Uh, maybe uh, think of this as maybe the first, uh, you know, 50 years of the 1900s, you know, 1900, 1950. Modernism is a time when the Bible, having been attacked and scandalized by rationalism, people were looking for new sources of truth. No longer was the Bible um, the source, the primary source of truth, and things developed like evolution and humanism. And psychology, man was trying to develop his own ways to deal with people, people's problems, their spiritual issues. Uh, the Bible was no longer the standard of all truth and doctrine, and uh, people weren't turning to it to guide their every thought. And so we have all of these uh, corruptions that were starting to spring up in the church. Well, today, starting in the 1960s, we have what is called a liberal postmodern thought. 
And uh, so we've gone from the modernism to postmodernism or aftermodernism. People do not even care about truth today. Truth is irrelevant. There are no absolutes. Um, and uh, this is kind of a reaction against the seeker-sensitive church growth movements coupled with postmodern thought, um, the emergent church. We're back to that. Um, the emergent church is now a reaction. We're tired of having fluffy church. You know, we're tired of coming and singing a bunch of songs, kind of a cheap version of Hollywood. We're tired of the rah, rah, rah and a little wimpy message and, you know, going through the same kind of motions that the old church did. We're tired of old church too. We're tired of old doctrines. We're tired of old ways of doing things. Um, we want new things. We want new inventions. We want to rework Christianity. And it's not about truth so much. It's about what you do um, that uh, is important. You know, Christianity and the doctrines of the Christian faith need a major overhaul. Brian McLaren, former pastor of Cedar Ridge Community Church in Baltimore, is a primary instigator of this movement. He has written a book entitled, A New Kind of Christian. Now, the title of the book itself explains itself, doesn't it? There is only one kind of Christian. There will only be one kind of Christian, and that is a Christian who has placed their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, repented and believed. They are saved and regenerated, and that's the only kind of Christian there is. There is no new kind of Christian. But he has written this book, and ironically, it was presented with the 2002 Award of Merit by Christianity Today, which many now call Christianity astray. Another recent book by McLaren is called A Generous Orthodoxy. Now, orthodoxy is a term used to describe those doctrines of the faith that have always been believed by all branches of Christianity that people hold to be essential doctrines, orthodox beliefs. Generous orthodoxy, you can kind of tell where this is going. McLaren has no formal theological training, yet says he believes... In the historic creeds of the faith, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, however, he does say the major doctrines of the Christian faith are nauseating. Amazingly, he also says truth should not be stated in propositional form. That is, it should not be defined by words. And to discuss Bible doctrine, it's just nauseating. You know, to say your doctrine's right and mine's wrong and, you know, to have these discussions. In February 7, 2005, issue of Time magazine, they quoted McLaren, who at a conference was asked about his views on gay marriage, and his response was, quote, The thing that breaks my heart is that there is no way I can answer it without hurting someone on either side. End quote. Well, let me ask you, does it hurt somebody to tell them the truth? Well, sometimes. Sometimes it hurts people, but only in a little way compared to if you don't tell them the truth. I mean, if somebody's headed for hell and you tell them you're going to hell, that might hurt them. But you're doing them a favor. You're loving them. To tell somebody, well, I don't want to answer the question because it might hurt somebody on either side. No, what's going to hurt somebody on the one side is if they're homosexuals and they're practicing homosexuals, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. Then they will have eternal hurt. So it's a very man-centered approach. The most loving thing you can do is speak the truth to people. But in the postmodern mindset, truth hurts, truth harms, truth 
Truth separates. It causes division. It hinders progress. I mean, why even talk about doctrine? Let's just do something. This is why McLaren refers to the doctrines of the Bible as weapons of mass distraction. And, you know, he's very eloquent. But he's saying that doctrine is a waste of time. Even though the Bible says that we are to devote ourselves and continue teaching sound doctrine. He says it's a waste of time. So you have to decide, now who should I believe here? When asked about his views in the Great Commission, McLaren said, quote, I don't believe making disciples must equal making adherence to Christian, the Christian religion. It may be advisable in many not all, question mark, circumstances to help people become followers of Jesus and remain within their Buddhist, Hindu, or Jewish contexts. This will be hard, you say, and I agree, but frankly, it isn't all these. You'd be a follower of Jesus in many Christian religious contexts either, end quote. You see that? You could be a Hindu and be saved by Jesus. You can be a Buddhist and be saved. You could be a Satanist. You could be an atheist. That's not important. Some of the primary tenets of the emergent church is that the Bible is not inerrant. It's not infallible. It's not authoritative. Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life. And you can get to heaven in other ways but by him. Pastor Rob Bell is the pastor of Mars Hill Bible Church. He and his wife are both graduates of Wheaton Bible College. Bell has stated that McLaren's book, A New Kind of Christian, is our lifeboat. End quote. Bell's wife has stated, quote, I grew up thinking that we figured out the Bible, that we knew what it means. Now I have no idea what most of it means, end quote. Bell himself has stated, quote, I think the liberals have it right. But I don't think, or he says, I don't think the liberals have it right, but I don't think we have it right either. None of us has arrived at orthodoxy, end quote. Nobody knows the truth. You can't know the truth. One writer defined the emergent church as a movement within Christianity that seeks liberation for what it classifies as anti- antiquated dogmas and traditions of Christianity. In other words, the doctrines that define Christianity need to be reworked, rewritten, or just totally ignored altogether because obviously we're moving on in this world and those doctrines are old and archaic. The emergent church is tired of old stale doctrine, old stale church hymns, old stale church services, old stale evangelism practices, and all the trappings of old stale Christianity. They even think that the seeker-sensitive movement is kind of old and stale because they're still holding on to some of that old stale stuff. The seeker movement isn't going far enough. We need a total redo of Christianity. Postmodern thought has been worming its way into Christianity since the 1960s. Even Billy Graham in recent years has stated that you don't even need to hear the gospel or know Christ in order to be saved. Think about that. You can be an animist worshiping bugs in the jungle. And as long as you're sincere, you'll get to heaven. That is postmodern thought. That is a damning heresy. Jesus prayed for his followers in John seventeen seventeen. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. 
Paul told Timothy and Titus to preach the word, to teach sound doctrine, to correct those in error, because sound doctrine must be maintained in Christ's church. Yet the emergent church is not into that doctrine stuff. We're pressing on. We're forging new horizons. So I want you to know, this movement is exploding. And you're going to hear a lot more of it in the future. You're going to be hearing more of the emergent church. Second theological trend you need to be aware of is the new perspective on Paul. Now we talked about the Renaissance giving birth to the Enlightenment and rationalism and theological liberalism. And within theological liberalism, there is another kind of thought or um, group of people that are called higher critics or higher critical theory. And I, I hate to bombard you with all these terms, but you need to understand them at least a little bit. Liberal Bible scholars have viciously attacked the histor- historicity, authority, and reliability of the Bible. They have done everything they can. It's, they call them higher critics, but they're, they're from the pit. Now, having done all they could to discredit the Bible as a whole, they then moved on to attack the Old Testament. And they begin writing all of these theories just thought up out of their rationalistic minds that the Old Testament wasn't really inspired by God, that God didn't actually move men to write down his words. What actually happened is that over the course of years, the Bible slowly evolved. It slowly morphed into the Old Testament we know. People kept adding to it and subtracting it and refining it. These different authors, J, E, P, and D, the redactors, slowly assembled the Bible and turned it into what we have today. And so the prophecies aren't really prophecies. They're men trying to make the Bible look like something special. Well, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls pretty much put a death knell to that one. Because when this view came became popular, what happened was um, the oldest manuscripts we had were from about 900 A.D. of the Old Testament. But the Dead Sea Scrolls had manuscripts 150, 200, 250 B.C., so a thousand years earlier. And they matched up with these 900 A.D. copies of the Masoretic text, uh, the Hebrew text, with precision, absolute precision. So... I want you to know, I still read in commentaries people who believe this. It is still, they just blindly believe it. In when they got through trying to attack the Old Testament, then they moved to the Gospels. And they decided to fix the Gospels. And they decided to explain away all the miracles. Explain away um, the resurrection. Explain away the deity of Christ. Explain away all those pastors that talk about miracles. And, and explain how the, the Gospels, which are four accounts, can have such just incredible agreement and not conflict. And so they said, you know what? There's this document. It's called Q. No one's ever seen it. No one's even ever heard of it. No one's even ever found a fragment of it, but it must have existed, and they all drew their information from Q. So they developed what is called the Q source theory. I mean, it sounds like Star Trek, doesn't it? And so they said that is why. And so these higher critics then began to attack the Bible and try to explain things away by talking about Q. 
Well, some of the higher critics that uh, you hear about today, they're coverage in the liberal media quite often. You know, front page of the L.A. Times, the Jesus Seminar determines that pretty much everything in the Gospels is not true. And Jesus didn't say everything it says he said. And all of these self-proclaimed Bible scholars, these, all these unbelievers, these liberals who reject all those things I talked about, those, those, those scholars get together and they decided, you know, let's vote to see what Jesus actually said So they got different colored beads and put them in a hat and they voted on different things. And when they got done, they decided that maybe, maybe Jesus uttered two verses in the Gospels. That's higher critical thought. Their approach to undermining the Old Testament, first the Bible, then the Old Testament, then the Gospels, and now they're after the Apostle Paul. They're trying to destroy the Apostle Paul and his arguments and his thoughts and his main doctrines. Of course, he is the champion of justification by faith through grace in the New Testament. And so, these higher critics, these liberal theologians, have been very surreptitious and insidious in the introduction of what is called the new perspective on Paul. The new perspective is complex, and the theological consequences of it are even more complex. But let me try to explain to you in a very simplified form what it is. The ideas of the new perspective were taught before it became popular. Other people wrote these same ideas. But they were made popular first by a man named E.P. Sanders. E.P. Sanders is a liberal theologian. He is an unbeliever. He has written many works and has done a lot of research in the area of what is called Second Temple Judaism or Palestinian Judaism around the time of Jesus and the Apostle Paul. It's called the Second Temple Period. Um, and so he has done a lot of, of study in the readings of the rabbis and things like that. And he has written a book called Paul and Palestinian Judaism. In that book, he challenged the idea that the Jews in the New Testament times were legalists. He did extensive reading and came to the conclusion that legalism was not a problem in first century Judaism. The Jews were not hung up on works. They were not trying to earn their way to heaven. They were not trusting in their good deeds to save them. In addition to Sanders, another liberal theologian and unbeliever, James Dunn, piggybacked on Sanders' research, and then he applied it to the Apostle Paul, especially his statements on the works of the law. Paul, when Paul talks about not being justified by works or not being, uh, you know, being justified by the works of the law, statements like that. And he came to the conclusion, along with Sanders, that Paul was not addressing legalism. He was not addressing people who were trying to be saved by works. That was not a problem. Paul in Galatians and Romans, for instance, was not commanding Judaizers, that is, these people who are saying, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but you have to do these works to be saved. He was not, com- he was not confronting the false notion that a person by their good deeds could be saved. No, what he was really addressing is issues of community. The covenant community, which is another way of saying the church. What he was really combating is, is there are some Jews who weren't quite sure whether Gentiles should keep the Sabbath and be circumcised and maybe 
partake in some dietary laws. And that was a conflict. And all Paul was saying is, is listen, you don't have to obey these dietary laws in order to be part of the covenant community, the church. But they weren't hung up on work salvation. They just were wondering if you needed to do these things as badges of your covenant community, that is church status. Now, you think about something like this, and you maybe think to yourself, well, Jack, you know, is that a big deal? Is that some theological poison? I mean, come on. You know, that doesn't seem all that strange. You've, you know, you, so you have a different view. They weren't legalists. It is a huge, huge deal. And this is why. If Jesus didn't combat legalism, and Paul wasn't combating legalism, when he talks about justifications not being of works and all those other statements, do you know what that means? That means all the reformers were wrong. The whole reformation was wrong. Protestantism is wrong. And we believe in the wrong gospel. That's the end of it. Now, do you think that's a big deal? It's a huge deal. Our understanding of Romans and Galatians and all the commentaries that have all been written since the Reformation, they're all wrong. In essence, the Roman Catholic Church is right. Because salvation is by works. Oh, we believe in God's grace and we believe in faith, but grace and faith are given to us so that we will maintain our works in order to keep ourselves saved. In other words, Paul and our whole understanding of Paul and all of his doctrines need overhauled. Sound familiar? Postmodernism. Bingo. Postmodern thought and liberalism, higher critical thought applied to Paul. It's an attack on the biblical doctrines defended by the reformers. It is an attack on Protestantism. And while the historical view itself seems rather harmless, yeah, so the, you know, they weren't, they, the consequences of that view are horrendous. They're catastrophic. It has led some to reject justification or redefine it. To say, well, justification isn't God declaring a believer to be righteous because of Christ and his righteousness. But justification is nothing more than future vindication. Justification is nothing more than God in the future saying, hey, you sided with the right guy. Way to go. There's no imputing of righteousness. There is no Christ's righteousness reckoned to you. So as soon as you redefine justification that way, you have no need of imputation. Imputation is the doctrine that God imputes or reckons to believers the righteousness of Christ. The reason you can pray to God, the reason you can boldly approach the throne of grace is not because you're perfectly holy. God is perfectly holy. The reason you can approach the throne of grace and find help in a time of need is because you have a mediator you can go through Christ and his righteousness is reckoned to you so that you, being a sinner, can approach an infinitely holy God through the righteousness of Christ, reckoned to you. But if you redefine justification, you don't need imputation, so out it goes. Now, not only that, others have redefined other things. Some in the new perspective camp have redefined righteousness as covenant community. That's a fancy name for the church. 
So when Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, he's really saying the church is revealed against all, and the same word with a negate on there, but that's not the church. But, you know, he's just saying, oh, yeah, you get into the church. He's talking about the church. He's the covenant community. No, he's not. He's talking about Jesus' righteousness applied to believers. That's what he's talking about. But they have redefined righteousness. And when all of this is boiled down, it comes down to this. Sure, you have to believe in Jesus. Sure, it is by being in Jesus and being in the covenant community that gets you saved. But what keeps you in that covenant community, the church, is doing good works. And if you don't do good works, to hell you go. So you can, by faith, enter into the church. You can be cleansed. You can be sanctified. You can be washed. You can be forgiven. But if you don't continue in good works, to hell you go. That is Roman Catholic doctrine of salvation, essentially. That is a damning heresy. That is trusting in your works to save you. And that is what the new perspective has boiled forth. Yes, it started with a historical view, but people are now taking that view, applying it to Paul, and they're coming up with these kinds of things. In other words, you're saved by grace and kept by your works. One of the more prolific and winsome writers of the New Perspective, N.T. Wright, said he doesn't even believe legalism existed in the first century. And N.T. Wright is a bishop of the Anglican Church, um, which is known as the Episcopal Church in America, And Wright is a major proponent of the new new perspective. N.T. Wright recently endorsed a book by Stephen Chalk entitled The Lost Message of Jesus. Whenever you hear a book like that, run. (laughs) Where Chalk describes the idea of the substitutionary atonement, that is Jesus dying on the cross in our place, as, quote, cosmic child abuse. Chalk says the cross is a symbol of love and not a place where God's justice is satisfied through the death of his son. Chalk rejects the biblical view of justification, yet Wright's endorsement of the book says it's rooted in good scholarship. Now you might be thinking to yourself, Jack, how does this happen? How how does something like this happen? Remember, people like Sanders and Dunn are unbelievers. They're children of Satan. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. Scholars? Yes. Diligent students? Yes. Held captive by Satan to do his will? Absolutely. They are of their father the devil. And the devil speaks nothing but lies. John eight forty four. And so these men then write these things in the academic community. And in the postmodern age, what's cool is what's new. The revamping, something new. So now all of these young men and all these theologians are grabbing onto and latching onto the new perspective. It's cool. It's fast. It's free. And so everybody jumps on this new thing and this new view which has new consequences because it helps us revamp what is old. It's this postmodernism being expressed through liberalism, and so all these people have jumped on this bandwagon, and granted, they have gone a lot of different ways with the new perspective, but every way I've seen has been bad. And I've read quite a bit on it. 
And the, the lesson to learn there, there is this. You do not go to the children of Satan, to those who are spiritually dead, to those who reject Christ, reject his deity, reject the authority and inspiration of the Bible, and sit down and learn theology from them. That is foolish. Bad company corrupts good morals, and good morals are nothing more than the expression of living out theology. And so that's how it comes about. It started in the academic realms and it's trickling down and now it's infiltrating churches. The real question is, does Jesus and Paul say legalism is a problem? The Bible's true. God's true, though every man be a liar. And you know, when you look in the Gospels, you read phrases like this. Jesus condemned the Pharisees because you justify yourself in the sight of men. You think you are right before God because of what you do. In other words, Luke 16, 14. Do you remember when Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? You know, the Pharisee, I'm so glad I'm not like other men. And the the tax collector who's, you know, beating his breast and be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you remember who he told that parable to? Let me remind you, Luke 18, 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That people is legalism. A damning form of it. All the way through the Gospels, Jesus condemns religious hypocrites who pretend to be one thing but are not. Those who don't need repentance. Those who don't need a physician. Those who think that by their own works they are righteous before God. It was a huge problem according to God. Paul, after condemning the Jews... The Jewish moralists and Gentiles and everyone else says in Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes a knowledge of sin. And if you read all these examples, he talks about all these good deeds that they were trying to do. These moral deeds. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul is addressing, the whole book is after the Judaizers, not according to the new perspective, but according to the truth. We are Jews not by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. You know what he's talking about when he says works of the law? He's talking about works of the law <laughs> the law of moses as a whole not just circumcision some dietary laws and sabbath keeping in galatians 3:11 paul says now that know that no one is justified by the law before god is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith. He says in Galatians 5, 4, You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Again, he's not talking about just a couple. He's talking about the law. The whole law. But to someone who has adopted a new perspective, all these, these verses, they don't mean what they seem to be saying. They're talking about community. About these people having a problem with other people's, you know, not being in their community. And that trying to make them do these certain things as badges. No, they weren't trying to be saved by these things. It's bad. They openly admit that Paul was conflicted. 
You read these, I, I had to read so many, so much of this stuff per a journal article. People are saying, oh yeah, well, Paul was confused here. Paul was conflicted. Paul was developing his theology. Do you understand what the reason, the, the, the consequences of that are? You know, the Bible is the word of God. And men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So to say Paul was conflicted and confused is to say what? God was conflicted and confused. It is blasphemy. Blasphemy against God. Paul wrote down the very words of God. And that is why we call this the word of God. Along with all the other authors of scripture. So beware of the new perspective, which is nothing but an attempt to attack the authority of the Bible, specifically the Apostle Paul, and to teach salvation by works and to try and undermine the whole efforts of the Reformation. Third, biblical literacy and doctrinal belief is a huge theological trend. I mentioned this last week that even though we have more resources, even though we have more things available to us than we have ever had before as far as Bible, sermons, commentaries, whatever, biblical literacy is at an all-time low. And I just want to demonstrate this just by one, one example. The Barna Research Group surveyed a large group of people, and 9% of that large group of people profess to be born-again believers. Now, when everybody says, yeah, I'm a born-again Christian, you're thinking, well, oh, brother, you know, sister. It's like we finally got somebody who's born again. Why? Because Jesus said you must be born again. Okay. So it's like, okay, good, good, good. You're a Christian. Praise God. So then they decided to survey these born-again believers and ask them, they surveyed them to see how many of them had a biblical worldview. Now, they just arbitrarily invented what a biblical worldview is, but these are the things, these eight criteria they decided would define what a biblical worldview was. So see if you have a biblical worldview. One, absolute moral truth exists. Absolute truth is defined by the Bible. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. God is the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe and still rules it today. Salvation is a gift from God and cannot be earned. Satan is real. Christians are responsible to share their faith in Christ with other people. The Bible is accurate in all of its teachings. And those are the eight. Those are pretty basic. I mean, there's a lot of doctrines that are left out. So they thought, well, if if everybody, we'll just say, if somebody says they're born again, and somebody agrees with these things, then we're going to say they have a biblical worldview. So this is what they found. 0.5 or half a percent of Roman Catholics held these beliefs. 2% of those who attend mainline Protestant denominations held these beliefs. 8% of those who called themselves born-again Baptists held these views. Only 10% of people who called themselves Pentecostals had a biblical worldview, according to Barna. And finally, among non-denominational Protestant churches like ours, only 13%. 13%. Half of the Protestant pastors surveyed rejected one or more of the critical doctrines I just stated. Now, why am I including this? Because ignorance of the truth is to believe in error. If you don't believe the truth, you believe something wrong. 
You believe something wrong. And while there are faithful men out there preaching and teaching God's word, just to know it is the rare exception, the rare exception. You wonder why one of our primary missions criteria is to train up pastors to teach and plant in local churches. This is why. Because it's, there's some places you go and there isn't a church. I mean, you could drive for a hundred miles and not find a church that teaches the Bible. Even in America. Do you remember Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Story? And uh, the ghosts, the three ghosts who visited Ebenezer Scrooge in the middle of the night. And when he was visited by the ghost of Christmas present... And at one point, that ghost points Scrooge's attention to his cloak. And under his cloak, there are these scrawny, emaciated, scary-looking, deformed children who are clinging to find refuge in the ghosts of Christmas present. And Dickens writes this. Scrooge started back appalled, having them shown to him in this way. He tried to say they were fine children, but the words choked themselves rather than be parties to a lie of such enormous magnitude. Spirit, are they yours? Scrooge could say no more. They are men's, said the spirit, looking down upon them. And they cling to me. Appealing from their fathers, this boy is ignorance, this girl is want. Beware of them both and of all their degree. But most of all, beware of this boy, for on his brow I see that written which is doom. And that is exactly true. If you don't know the truth, you will go to hell. You will go to hell. There is one way, one truth, and one life. And no one gets to the Father but by that truth. You wonder why Calvary Bible Church is into teaching and equipping and training people to do the work of the ministry? I have people come here who are their first time. They go, man, everything in your your church is about the Bible. You see, we were looking at your literature and everything you say has Bible verses tacked onto it. Hello? Of course. Of course. Why? Because if you don't know the truth, what? You're vulnerable to deception. You believe a lie. You can't worship in spirit and truth if you don't know the truth. You can't be saved if you don't know the truth. You can't be sanctified if you don't know the truth. So we teach truth. Why? Because the Bible says to constantly give ourselves to the teaching, exhortation, and reading of the scriptures, to take pains with these things, to be absorbed in them, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You don't get to just sit there and go, well, yeah, I just, you know, let's not get too fanatic about this Bible thing. No, let's get fanatic. Four, bad Bible translations. Most of you are familiar with the New International Version of the Bible. I mentioned this a couple years back. I just want to warn you again. The TNIV, or today's New International Version by Zondervan, is an attempt to make the Bible gender neutral. So they've taken a lot of the he's out of there and put they and them. Just, you know, make God 
kind of not real masculine or feminine and kind of make it so feminists could read the Bible and not be offended. The TNIV, be warned of that. Recently, even a more hideous version has come out called Good as New, a Radical Retelling of the Scriptures. Now, what does that sound like? Postmodernism. See, everything's new these days. This is the thought of the age. Just beware of it. The text is very simplified. All political incorrect statements or allusions have been reworded so that now the Bible teaches what is politically correct. Well, that's nice. Not. The forward of this new version, the good, good is new radical retelling of the scriptures version, the forward in that version is by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, the highest ranking person in the Anglican Church. The author, John Henson, a former Baptist, refers to himself as a member of a network of radical Christians. Redoing. Emerging from the stale Christianity. And rewriting. And so he has created this new perversion of the Bible. Where all the key characters of the Bible are renamed, you know, to have more modern names people can relate to. Peter is called Rocky. <laughs> Mary Magdalene is Maggie. Aaron is Ron. Barabbas is Barry. Here's a couple of examples from this new version of the Bible. Mark 1, 10 through 11. Mark's account of Jesus' baptism. And as he was climbing up the bank, the sun shone through a gap in the clouds. At the same time, a pigeon flew down and perched on him. Jesus took, it, took this as a sign that God's spirit was with him. A voice from overheard, for overhead was heard saying, This is my boy. You're doing fine. In 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2, the New American Standard Bible reads, Now concerning the things about which I which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The King James translated because of fornications. It's any sort of sexual perversion there, the word immoralities. Henson renders this in his new version. Some of you think the best way to cope with sex is for men and women to keep right away from each other. That is more likely to lead to sexual offenses. My advice is for everyone to have a regular partner. Later in verse 9 of that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, Hemson's version reads, If you know you have strong needs, get yourself a partner. Better than being frustrated. The Bible is advertised as women, gay, and sinner friendly. And a version of the Bible where readers can, quote, hear for the first time what the Christian scriptures are really saying. So beware of that. And I hope you notice that in every one of these aberrations, they are all attack on the Bible. All of them are attack on the Bible. Fifth. There's the total collapse of the Anglican Church. We've already mentioned N.T. Wright and the Archbishop endorsing that book. And the Anglican Church supports 
you know, homosexuality and sexual immorality and lesbianism and fornication, all sorts of things. But more recently, even the worship of pagan deities. Bishops in the Anglican church like Jack Sponge and Charles Benison even deny the resurrection. Yet they're still bishops, Anglican bishops. In an article entitled, A Woman's Eucharist, A Celebration of the Divine Feminine, which is listed on the Episcopal Church's official women's ministry website. There we read of women who gather around a low table of sweet wine and milk with mixed honey, a bowl filled with salted water and raisin cakes. And one of the women says, quote, Mother God, our ancient sisters called you the Queen of Heaven and bake these cakes in your honor in defiance of their brothers and husbands who would not See your feminine face. We offer you these cakes made with our own hands, filled with a grain of life, scattered with, uh, scattered and gathered into one loaf and broken and shared among many. We offer these cakes and enjoy them too. They are rich with the sweetness of fruit and fertile with the ripeness of grain, sweetened with the power of love. And may we also be signs of your love and abundance. So they're worshiping the queen of heaven in defiance of brothers and husbands. Where do they get this? They get it from two texts in the Old Testament primarily. Hosea 3.1, where the Lord says to Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So what they're saying is we want to do what God prevented Gomer from doing. Because God was anti-feminine. But most of this comes from Jeremiah 44, 15 through 19, where the Lord through Jeremiah is rebuking the women who have worshipped the queen of heaven. This is what the text says, verses 15 through 19. Then all the men who were aware that their wives were burning sacrifices to other gods, along with all the women who were standing by as large as a large assembly, including all the women who were living in Pathros in the land of Egypt, responded to Jeremiah saying, as, the message, as for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you. But rather, we will certainly carry out every word that has proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings and our princes did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and were well off and saw no misfortune. But since we have stopped burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have met our end by the sword and by famine. And, said the women, when we were burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and were pouring out drink offerings to her, was it without our husbands that we made for her sacrificial cakes? In her image and poured out drink offerings to her. In the other way, in other words, these women are saying, we aren't going to submit to our husbands. We are going to submit to God's word. We are going to submit to God's prophet. We're going to keep worshiping the queen of heaven because when we did that before, we were blessed. And when we stopped, we're not. And we're going to do it without our husband's consent. We're going to rebel against them. And these women have now made a Eucharist to worship the queen of heaven. It is on the official Episcopal ch- 
site for women's ministry. Is that unbelievable or what? That is enough to give somebody an aneurysm. Okay, moving on. One more thing and we'll stop. Roman Catholic Church denies biblical authority. The Times reported that in celebration of the 40th anniversary of the Second Vatican Council statement on the Bible, Roman Catholic bishops in England, Wales, and Scotland have stated that people should not expect total accuracy from the Bible. The bishop stated, quote, We should not expect to find in Scripture full scientific accuracy or complete historical precision, end quote. And they deny the first 11 chapters of Genesis, say that we should not expect the Bible to be accurate, except maybe in issues of salvation. You know what the consequences of that are? Jesus said Adam was a real person, and Eve was a real person, and so do the other authors of Scripture. And that creation actually happened. That God actually spoke the world and all the universe and all it contains into six literal days. So if what they're saying is true, then Jesus is a liar and the writers of Scripture are liars. That is the, that's the outcome. Now, this is the irony of this. Do you see how satanic this is? The Catholic Church has the scriptures. Won't let anybody read them. You have to be trained. You have to be a priest to read and study the scriptures. We'll interpret it for you and tell you what to believe. The Reformation comes along. The Bible starts getting into the people's hands. The Roman Catholic Church tries to kill as many as they can and to burn as many copies of Bibles in the common language in order to keep people from reading the Bible. Finally, the Reformation takes off and they can't stop it. But... Those who stayed in the Catholic Church were content at being ignorant until just recently. And now Roman Catholics are starting to read the Bible. And so now they're saying, oh, but it's full of errors. You see that? Anything that they can to keep people from reading the Bible. Now, the irony of this is that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the Bible came from them. They produced the Bible. And they claim to be infallible. Now it's full of errors. So, what are we to do with all this? Well, Calvary Bible Church believes that the Bible is God's word. That all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. We believe that the sum of God's word is truth and the individual pieces of God's word are truth. That not even a jot or tittle will pass away from all of God's word until all is accomplished. We believe that The flower fades, the grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word abides forever. That it is totally accurate, that it is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness, because it is the very word of God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That is why this is Calvary Bible Church. Because that is what we teach and that is what we believe. We make no apology for it. I don't have to prove to you the Bible is true. It is true because God says so. And you aren't into a place to judge God. He's going to judge you. And the question is, are you going to right now repent, give your life to Christ and believe him or not? That is the issue. And he's not going to take for people saying, well, you know, I had some problems. Well, he has problems too. He has problems with those who think that they can judge him in his word. And so as we come into this next century... Beware and be warned, there are a plethora of bad doctrines and movements out there whose sole purpose is to try and discredit the authority 
and integrity of this book. But the good thing is, is that many people have tried to do it in the past. And they can't do it. Like one author said, the word of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your truth and your word. We thank you that we have everything we need in it for life and godliness and that heaven and earth will pass away before one jot or tittle of your word ever fails. Father, we thank you that you have given us your truth, that we might know it, that we can know the truth, that we can be sanctified by the truth, that we can worship you in spirit and truth, that yes, we can by your spirit Come to know what you have for us, your plan for the future, who you are, how to be saved, how to grow in you. All those things are in your word, how to overcome every spiritual problem in our lives. Father, we are grateful for this great gift. May we guard the truth and protect it because there are many forces in the world that are trying to undermine it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.